The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if, you are, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this. You and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have performed a notable sign, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking out about what we have seen and heard. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you and we praise you for your goodness and your love, for your mercy and your kindness and your grace. Thank you for the blessings that we see and those we may not. Keep our eyes open to become aware and witness to these gifts that you have given us. We love you. And we pray, Father, that today, this morning, you will be with Todd as he shares your word with us. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Thanks, Mindy. As we're about 20 weeks in, about four months in together as being a community and being a church, as John and I have met together and we're praying and planning, I can't help but think consistently Gosh, I wish I could open the Bible and the Bible would have like a list of, of how to be the church. I wish I could open the Bible and there would be like this top 10 things that you must do in order to be a healthy church or a healthy community. Or that we could open the Bible and it would be like, okay, by week four of being the church, you should have done X, Y, and Z so that I could go in and check off. Yes, we've done that. And yes, we've done this. And here's what's next. And for so much of my life, it's like that. It's not just here at church. I wish there was like, I could open the Bible and there'd be like a list of 10 things you must do in order to raise godly children. And it's just not there. 
Um, and as I think about that, I, I'm one of those people, I've got a Bible that I had since I was in high school. I don't use it much anymore because, frankly, Romans is falling out of it. It's just not in good shape. And now I've got a Bible that I preach from, and then I've got you version on the phone, and so I, I don't have a Bible the same way I did. But the Bible that I had in high school, if you go back, I've still got it. You can go back and look at it. You'll notice that the last third of the Bible is like underlined and there's notes in it and it's very well used. But if you go before that, it's less so. And one of the reasons for this is because if you read the last third of the Bible, it's, it's the epistles, the letters to the churches. And it's Peter and Paul and others writing to the churches, telling them these are things that you all should be doing and these are things that you all should stop doing. And so I read those and I think, I get that. Like, it's very clear. I know what to do with it. But when I read, like, the Old Testament or even the Gospels and the book of Acts, it's all written in narrative form. Like, we're, we're reading stories. And see, I would love to have, like, this list of ten things that we must do as a community in order to be the church that God's called us to be. And instead, what we see when we open the Bible is we get this messy story of the first church, of the early church. This messy story of these disciples who are given this incredible responsibility and have absolutely zero qualifications for doing it, right? As we read narrative, what I find, though, is as much as I'd like, like, simple lists of this is what to do and this is what not to do, narrative is actually so much more powerful, isn't it? I mean, frankly, if I had, if the Bible had a list of 10 things you must do in order to be a good parent, life is way messier than that, isn't it? And every kid's different, and every relationship's different, and even in the church, we all come together bringing our baggage and our messiness. It's not as clear as 10 steps, right? And the other thing is that as we read narratives, we're invited into the story. We're invited to engage it. We begin, actually, narratives, I think, for me, bring up more questions than answers quite often. And I've got to wrestle through those questions that they bring up. I think this is not only why so much of the Bible is written in story form. The Old Testament, we wrestle with Jonah's story, and we wrestle with Job's story, and we wrestle with Jacob's story. But I think it's the same reason that Jesus taught so much in parables, too, right? Jesus didn't tend to give like a list of things that you must do. Instead, he would tell stories. And as he told the stories, it's interesting because the disciples, the people that Jesus was investing all of this time in that Jesus knew would be the cornerstone of his church moving forward, right? The, the builders and the shapers of the church moving forward, they would ask him, Jesus, we don't understand this parable. What does it mean? And so like when I'm reading the New Testament and Jesus telling these parables, I'm like, okay, this is the good part. But even as I read Jesus' explanations, oftentimes Jesus' explanations bring up more questions than they do answers. And I get the sense that Jesus was perfectly okay leaving the disciples to wrestle with these questions, right? Think about my kids. Uh, I'm going to, Caleb's not in here. He was in here earlier this morning, so I didn't bring his name up, but I'm going to now. Uh, so don't tell him, all right? This is our little secret. Caleb's wired like me. And I can tell Caleb, he, he's got, like, an opportunity to make a choice in front of him. It happened yesterday. I'll use this example. Caleb's going over to a friend's house for a birthday party, and he's got those, like, slides on. You know, they're like flip-flops. And I said, hey, 
Caleb, you guys are likely to go outside and play or something. You sure you don't want to put shoes and socks on? And Caleb said, no, slides are fine. And I go to drop him off at the house, and the mom comes out and says, it's really too hot outside, so we're going to take the kids bowling. And I thought, he didn't have socks, like, right? I, I said, Caleb, this is what you should do. You should put on shoes and socks. And his first thing was to say, don't tell me what to do, essentially, right? Now, if I had, if I had set it up maybe as a question and said, hey, Caleb, if you wear your slides, what are you going to do you know, if, if there's a bowling game or something to go to? And now like he's got to wrestle with his choice and make decisions. And so I think when we read narratives, it invites us to do the same thing, right? It asks us questions that then we've got to engage in and wrestle with. And so as we look at Acts chapter 4, I also want to tie it back to last week, to Acts chapter 3, because these two chapters go together. They're telling two parts of the same story. And as we're, as we're going to look at it, um, likely we're going to walk away with more questions than answers. And so I'm going to ask some questions at the end that I think would be good just for us to wrestle with individually and corporately. But before we get to those questions, let's first get to the story. So if you weren't here last week, John preached on Acts chapter 3. And in Acts chapter 3, we've got Peter and John. They're walking up to the temple. It doesn't tell us why, but they're heading to the temple. And as they walk into the temple, they come across this lame man that the story tells us is at the temple daily, asking for donations, asking uh, for gifts. And Peter and John walking up see this man that's been here, that's been there daily, and they make eye contact with the guy. The, the lame man's got his head down, but he's still, he's got his hand out, head down, asking for money. And Peter and John see him, and Peter looks at him and makes eye contact with him. And not only that, but asks the lame man to look back at him. And Peter says, I, I don't have money to give you, but, but commands the guy to stand up and walk. And the guy does. He's healed. The guy stands up and begins walking. And it's a pretty crowded day at the temple, I would imagine. And as a result of that, people see this lame man that they have seen daily as they're going up to the temple who has not been able to walk since birth. And they now see him walking around. And the people are amazed at what they're seeing. And so Peter stands up and begins proclaiming the gospel message, the good news of Jesus, that Jesus came to heal the sick and the lame and to rescue the lost and to offer salvation. And the Bible tells us that 2,000 people are added to the people of, to the followers of Jesus that day. Absolutely amazing story. And then in chapter 4, we're introduced to this group of people. The, the text we read this morning doesn't Name them by name, it just mentions that they're rulers of the temple. But these rulers of the temple are a group of people known as the Sadducees. And if you were here in May when we went through the story course in week three, Connie presented the story of Jesus, but she also talked about some of the leading groups that were, that were existing at the time of Jesus. And one of those groups were the Sadducees. And these different groups had different ideas or ways of responding to the promises of God and yet recognizing that they were under foreign rule. And for the Sadducees, what the Sadducees decided to do, rather than fighting against the Romans, they decided to kind of uh, become bedfellows with the, with the Romans. They were people of influence. They had a lot of wealth. They were in positions of power. Their cultural status was really high. And so their deal was, we don't want anything to change. In fact, we're going to do everything we can to keep the status quo. We want to keep everything 
quiet. Their whole tact was to keep the Romans happy and benefit from their partnership with the Romans to protect their comfort and their position, their power, their status, and their influence. So in the Gospels, when Jesus begins proclaiming that that Caesar isn't king, but that he was, the Sadducees got very uncomfortable with that. And so the Sadducees had a key part to play in conspiring to have Jesus crucified because he was a troublemaker. He was disrupting things, and the Sadducees didn't want their comfort disrupted. And so here we have in the book of Acts, we've got these these men, these fishermen, these nobodies who are beginning to cause trouble just like Jesus did. And you got to imagine that for the Sadducees, like, They've essentially just had Jesus crucified. They're probably thinking, okay, we've got that troublemaker out of the way, right? Life's going to go so much better for us. There's going to be way more disruption. And then they've got these like lowly nobodies who are now doing the same things that Jesus did. You got to think the Sadducees, as they're gathering together to conspire, they're like, what do we have to do, right, to protect our comfort, to protect our status? We We had Jesus crucified, who was incredibly popular. Now we've got these nobodies doing the exact same thing. And so last week when John was preaching on that text, and even as I was looking at Acts chapter 4 this week, I I kept thinking, gosh, these, these stories are really difficult for me to wrap my mind around. I'm not really sure what they have to say to me. And the reason for that is I can't possibly imagine Like going up to a lame person, a person that has been lame from birth and commanding them to get up and walk, that is like just a foreign concept or idea to me. I can't can't possibly imagine it. And not only that, but I can't imagine being thrown into jail for an act of kindness. And then the next day standing before royals, uh, before royalty and authority and and like defying them and, and saying, that Jesus was the cornerstone that you had crucified. I can't imagine having that boldness or courage that Peter and John do. And so as John was preaching last week, and as I was wrestling with Acts chapter 4 this week, I kept wondering, gosh, what is it that I do with this story then if it's so distant for me? And there were a couple of thoughts that I had and then a lot of questions uh, that came up. Uh, one of the first thoughts was, we're talking about Peter and John here. Peter and John were just fishermen, right? And I imagine for Peter and John, if you had asked them four years earlier, can you imagine a time that you're going to ask a lame man to walk? They would look at you like you are crazy. You're out of your mind. Or there's going to be, become a time when you're going to stand up before the religious authorities and you're going to stand with this boldness and courage. I can't imagine that Peter and John had any sense of what that might look like. And not only were they simply fishermen, right, but after they became followers of Jesus, Jesus is crucified. If you remember at the end of the gospel stories, like there's this young woman, okay, and a young woman at that time had very little status, very little influence, very little power. They were not somebody to be feared, and yet this young girl approaches Peter after Jesus is crucified and said, hey, I think you know that man. I think you know Jesus. And Peter's response is, no, I didn't, I didn't know Jesus. Jesus like completely crumples in front of this young woman who has no authority, right? Does it three times. 
And yet now we see him standing before the Sanhedrin, before the religious leaders of the day, and boldly proclaiming the name of Jesus. The Sadducees, even as, Jesus is, or even as Peter is doing this, point out Peter's uneducated. Who is this man? He's just an ordinary man, and yet he's speaking with such eloquence and authority. And as I was reading this, I was thinking, gosh, Peter really is just an ordinary man like me and like you. But he did extraordinary things to influence thousands of people precisely because he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And this is why for us as a community, as we're starting out together, we're, being, we're trying to be so intentional about gathering together on Sunday mornings and on Thursday afternoons and individually as well, just praying that God would send the Holy Spirit. Just praying for the Holy Spirit to be active. Because if we are going to be a community shaped by the gospel, and we're going to be a community that's for the renewal of all things, it can't be under our power or authority. It's only through the Holy Spirit. And not only that, but Peter had also spent time with Jesus, right? Jesus had seen Peter as more than a fisherman. In fact, when Jesus meets Peter, Peter's name's actually Simon, and he's, he's, just, he's out fishing. And not only does Jesus see Peter as more than a fisherman and says, you're going to be a fisher of men, right? But Jesus even goes as far as changing Peter's name from Simon to Peter, and he says, I'm going to call you Peter because on, on you, you're going to be the rock on which I build my church. Jesus sees Peter as more than just a fisherman. And now Peter's able to see this beggar as more than just a lame man. The text says Peter and John looked right at the lame man. And not only that, but the lame man is like so many of the people that we see like collecting change along the streets, Right? They don't make eye contact with you until you make it with them. And Peter looks right at this lame man and says, look back at me. Peter wants the man to know, I see you, and I want you to see me. There's a connection there. As uh, as we heard earlier from the 2 Corinthians text, there's this idea that we stop seeing one another from a human point of view, Right? Peter's seeing this lame man from a godly point of view, the same way Jesus had seen him. And on the other hand, you've got the Sadducees, right? The religious leaders at the time. They're the rulers of the temple. And if this man's been outside the temple daily, you know the Sadducees have walked by him almost on a daily basis. And I wonder, it doesn't tell us, but I wonder if the Sadducees were able to really see him. And even as I was thinking about that, I was thinking about the beggar too, right? There's Peter and John and their response. There's the Sadducees and like their probably dismissiveness as they walked by on a daily basis. But there's also the lame man who's begging there, who has done everything he can. He wants to be seen in some ways, right? Because he, wants, he needs the money from people, but he's also learned from the culture, culture around him to make himself invisible, Right? And to hide himself and to drop his eyes. And I think, gosh, that sounds really familiar too, that so often we fall victim of that as well. I think in our culture, people desperately want to be seen. You desperately want to be seen. And I desperately want to be seen. And yet there's something within us that tells us to make ourselves invisible. I said as I read the story, that it brings up lots of questions as well. 
the entire story of Acts brings up one question in particular for me. And as I read the story of Acts, and I'm amazed at what's happening through the, through the early church, the biggest question that I, I constantly ask is, why isn't God still moving this way? Or why don't I see it? Maybe God is, and I just don't see it. And so I was wrestling with that this week. I was wrestling with it as John was preaching last week. And as I was thinking through this question, I became really convicted that maybe that's not the right question. That maybe instead of questioning God because of his apparent absence, maybe the better thing for me to do is to turn and look and focus on my presence or lack of presence. Right? Maybe, maybe I'm not present with myself enough to recognize my own needs, to recognize my own brokenness, my own need for Jesus. And maybe I'm not present enough with God. Maybe I'm not spending enough time with God as well. Maybe I'm not fully aware of God's presence. We sang about God's presence being welcome here, and maybe I'm just not fully present with that myself as well, and that's something I should pay attention to. And then it's just the presence with each other. Maybe God's very present, but I'm just not paying attention to the opportunities that are laid before me. This is one of the big questions I have. Why doesn't God still move this way? And maybe... A lot of that, maybe instead of focusing on that which I can't control and trusting that God continues to be faithful, maybe the question that I should be wrestling with is about my own presence. As I I say that, the the truth of the matter is, maybe for you and maybe for me, that the Holy Spirit isn't prompting us to do what Peter did, right? And in fact, if we're going to go up to a lame person and command them to walk, we better be really confident that the Holy Spirit's prompting us to do that, right? So maybe God's not prompting us to do that. Maybe he is. But the question that we should be asking, instead of like this distance from Peter, I have no idea what it's like to be prompted to do that. Maybe what I should be paying attention to is what is the Holy Spirit actually prompting me to do? Instead of listing all the things that, well, I don't think the Holy Spirit's prompting me to do that. Okay, what is it the Holy Spirit is prompting you to do and me to do? and us to do together. And as we consider that, are we being faithful to the opportunities that God has given us? What if we were? Think about that. What if we were truly faithful in the opportunities that God was given us? And I'm not just talking about for us as Cornerstone, but think about the church in Tulsa. We have churches all over Tulsa. What if we were faithful to the opportunities God was placing in front of us. And not just that, but you think about the church around the world. What if we were truly faithful to the opportunities that God was placing before us? I would imagine that our culture would look dramatically different. And on the other hand, you could ask the question, what if, what if we're not? What are the consequences to us not being faithful, to not lifting our eyes, to not seeing the opportunities that are in front of us? Think about the breakdown or loss of community or the neglect that people feel or hopelessness. And I think we see evidence of this all around us. So why isn't God moving as he did? And maybe we should be more focused on our presence. And what is it that the Holy Spirit's prompting us to do? As you go through the week, what kind of opportunities are in front of you to see people the way Peter saw the lame man sitting outside the temple. And the third question is a question that's like, 
This is the one that's the hardest for me. This is the one that's the most convicting for me that even this morning as I'm preaching this is like I'm feeling the weight of the question. And the question is this, is it possible that I'm not living with the power of Peter and John because I don't want it? You you think about, gosh, the authority and the power that Peter and John are speaking with and the immense responsibility that goes with that. And not just the responsibility, but the vulnerability that's required of it as well. I think so often I miss opportunities, and I say the word miss. I maybe don't miss them. I recognize them, but I'm actually refusing the vulnerability that it requires for me to connect with the person. I was thinking this morning, it hadn't dawned on me before, but you've got this lame man sitting outside the temple who's in an incredibly vulnerable position, right? Because he's counting on others to give him money. He's got no way to earn money to survive. But Peter does this amazing thing where he allows himself to become vulnerable as well. Peter has a choice in that. He doesn't have to be vulnerable in that moment. He could walk by like everybody else, but Peter, because he's been seen by Jesus is able to allow himself to become vulnerable and see the person in front of him as well. Is it possible that I don't have the power, that we don't have the power of Peter and John because we don't want the power or we don't want the responsibility and the vulnerability that goes with that? And if that's true, am I then more like the Sadducees in the story than Peter and John? And throughout Acts, the Sadducees are consistently set against the movement of the church, and the movement of the Holy Spirit. Those are weighty questions for me. And yet, this is a power that we have, whether we act in it or not. Jesus tells the disciples, which included Peter and John, if you go back in the the Gospel of John, Peter tells the disciples, whoever you forgive will be forgiven. It's amazing authority that Jesus is passing on. Those you forgive will be forgiven. We get to offer others hope and eternal life. Second Corinthians, Paul says we get to be, we are, not we get to be, we are. Whether we want to be or not, we are ambassadors of Jesus Christ as though God was imploring others through us. It's this incredible power that we have. Like Paul, we get to proclaim today is the day of salvation. And yet, I think like Peter and John, we can't share what we haven't experienced. And so it's it's like I was wrestling with the weight of those questions and thinking about my my own response. What is it that I'm supposed to do with this? I I realized I could, like Peter in the Old Testament or in uh, the Gospels, go out and try to do things under my own power and my own authority. Instead of allowing myself to be like John chapter 15, abiding in Christ and surrendered to the Holy Spirit. We can't share what we haven't experienced. If we are to get to a place where we can, like Peter and John, say we cannot help but speaking about what we have seen and heard, we must start where Peter and John did. And the great thing is that every Sunday morning as we gather together, we gather around this table, right? And the words of Jesus are echoed to each one of us. This is my body. This is the body of Christ broken for you, okay, and for you, Craig. And this is the blood of Christ that's been shed for you, right? 
And so as we gather on Sunday mornings, that's what this is about. Before we can go out and live being the community that, that God's called us to be, we must first be present with Jesus. Allow ourselves to be seen by Jesus, warts and all, right? The scars, the brokenness. And to hear Jesus say, you're forgiven. I love you. I want to spend time with you before we can go out and do that for others. And so as we gather around this table this morning, this is what I want to encourage us to do. I want to encourage us to slow down, right? So often we come up to take communion, and frankly, we take communion the way the beggar stood outside the temple asking for money, right? We go and we've got our hands cupped and our heads down. I want to encourage us to get vulnerable this morning. So if you're serving communion, I want to encourage you, make eye contact with the person that you're serving. You say, this is the body of Christ given for you. Make sure they know that you see them. See them with the eyes of Christ. And if you're receiving communion, allow yourself to not only be seen, but see the person that's serving you as well. Say, this is the body of Christ broken for you also. I would encourage you as you come up, take your time too. Like, let's not rush through this. Let's allow ourselves to be present with Jesus, to be seen by Jesus, so we can begin to experience what that's like so that we can go out as a community and share that in a city and a culture that desperately needs it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, I confess that as much as I want a list of like 10 things to do so that at the end of the day I can check them off and know, okay, I was faithful today. God, the truth of the matter is if you gave me that list, I'd probably rebel against it anyway. And so, God, you give us this messy story where we read about people like Peter who for so long did things under his own authority and his own power and his own way of doing things, and yet there's this amazing transformation that takes place for Peter where he becomes surrendered to you and in that surrender finds this incredible power and courage and authority. And so, Lord, as we continue to wrestle and grow as a community that, Father, seeks the renewal of the city to your glory, God, I pray that you would help move us through that transformation as well. Lord, I believe that begins with us being seen by you. Father, really seen. Not just the parts of us that we want you to see, but Father, to really be seen. And to be seen by one another. And Father, then to be able to go out and see each other and see others outside of this community. Father, the way that you see them. And so Lord, rather than this call to go out and do a bunch of stuff... Lord, I pray that you would allow us the courage to just be present with you here, to begin there, to be seen by you. Lord, may we truly experience that this morning. I pray this in your name.